And welcome back to Restless. This is uh, the second part of our two-part episode on the Latin Mass. The first time we uh, brought up some difficult and controversial topics because I think people get really passionate about the liturgy, which means they care, which is a good thing. We should, we should get passionate about things that really is kind of the most important thing that human beings could ever do, which is worshiping God at Mass. Um, but we have to make sure that it's always civil and charitable. And so today we're going to kind of talk about um, kind of how, how the traditional Latin Mass and the Novus Ordo can kind of meld together. So you've joined Diane, uh, Joe, what's your name? Joe. <laughs> I look at your face, I just don't know your name. Yeah, fair enough. And uh, yeah, and so we're... <laughs> did you, wait, did you say all of our names? Diane, Joe, and Lauren? Okay, so I'm not sure you said Lauren's name or not. Lauren, yes, Lauren, Lauren, Lauren is here. <laughs> Excellent. So uh, we ended last time kind of talking about um, talking about the TLM versus Novus Ordo and like where it came from and how, you know, if, you, if we actually interpreted Vatican II according to the documents of Vatican II, it would be a very different looking liturgy because uh, it did talk about keeping Gregorian chant in there, keeping it in... Uh, you know, just the reverence, and even today, I mean, in the in the Roman Missal, it actually assumes that you're celebrating at Orientum, because it says several times you have to turn and face the people. Well, usually I'm facing the people anyway, so so there's kind of that assumption already written into it. So so, but in what way do you think that the traditional Latin Mass can inform the Novus Ordo, and vice versa? How can they improve each other? Joe. Uh, you're I, the one that you're the one that I wanted know. us to ask this question. So. Just trying to be polite. Um, yeah, I think that I didn't realize how much I was spoiled at St. Mary's in Bethel liturgically until I experienced liturgies elsewhere. I kind of just assumed that that was how Mass was. There's a real crisis in the church about the way the Mass is celebrated, and there are a lot of I, I don't, I'm not just saying this like as like a like you know I mean I'm saying I really mean this. I'm sure there are a lot of very good and holy priests who just don't get that the Mass needs to be celebrated reverently. And like I go to sometimes daily Mass around where I work, which, and uh, I won't say, say whether I don't want to get anybody in trouble or <laughs> anybody, but... Any location. Yeah, and you get like very rushed Masses, weird abrupt hand gestures that just feel very like perfunctory and not like related to what you're actually doing. And um, I think that, you know, there are some small and some big ways that the Novus Ordo should, could learn from the traditional Latin Mass. I mean, you know, more Latin. I mean, Latin's not actually that hard, and it's actually a, a, a stunningly beautiful language. And I mean, at St. Mary's in Bethel, over the years, we've you know we've done the um, the Agnus Dei in Latin, we've prayed the Our Father in Latin. Um, that's that's and that's awesome. That's, that's that's just great. And we don't look twice about about the um, about the um, the Lord be with um, no Lord be with uh, what have mercy, Christ have mercy. What's the Greek? I'm, the Kyrie. Kyrie. We don't we don't think twice about that. We, we don't speak Greek, so I don't think that that's actually so <laughs> much such a barrier. But there's also maybe even just fostering a greater, a greater devotion to the Eucharist insofar as people receive on the tongue or even kneeling, um, altar rails, the paten, right? I mean, there are things like this that are so small things that make a big difference in the way we approach the Blessed Sacrament, I think. Yeah. I think you're so right about, you know, priests have to understand that they're not the entertainer. Yeah. You know, it's not about their personality. In fact, that's why priests wear vestments is so that they fade away and Christ shines through and... You know, the only place the priest's personality should come through is the homily. And even then, it shouldn't be a comedy hour. You know, it should be giving people authentic Catholic teaching. But I was listening to the Liturgy Guys podcast because I have fascinating pastimes. And, uh, <laughs> and they're saying that the, the Missal envisions the priest really only speaking when necessary. They're saying that even things like how to approach communion should really be done by a deacon. Because the priest's job actually isn't to be like, watch out for that spill of water over there and um, <laughs> donuts afterwards, you know, at, at 11. And he said that, that, that they're saying that, that the priest's job is to, is to lead the worship. And, and the deacon's job is there, and, and the commentator, whoever's job is, they're, they're there to assist in those ways. I mean, you know, it's not always possible, but I think it's an interesting way to think about what you're saying, which is the priest is not there to be, you know, a comedian. 
Well, I have a, I guess, a question on that because when I have gone to the solemn mass at St. John's, to me, it seems like there's so much reverence to the priest and the priests, like their movements are so slow and articulated. And, you know, like this past Sunday, the two priests who aren't the celebrant are holding up the mm. vestment of like, Jazzable, it's, yeah. yeah. And it, just as someone that doesn't know anything, it seems like there's all this reverence being directed at the priest mm. versus at your regular Sunday mass. The, all that stuff isn't happening. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. I don't know. And I don't know how, um, you know, for someone like me to be able to understand how the reverence is directed more towards Christ versus the priest. But the priest is acting in persona Christi. Right. So that's the whole point. And that, that creates the reverence. Remember at the Mass, it's Christ himself offering himself to the Father for us, not Father, Father Joseph Gill offering Christ. Like, ultimately, it is Christ that we're talking about when we're the priest at that moment in Mass. So maybe, you know, for someone like me, I haven't gone to that Mass very often. So you're used to not seeing any kind of reverence, right? And, and the priest, you know, some are better than others, right? Father Joseph, you're excellent. You know, doing... <laughs> $20 is <for> coming later. <laughs> uh you know, the gospel reading, but there's nothing extra special happening for you. You know, like you're wearing the vestments and you're doing the offering, right? Like we get it. And then when I see it done in the solemn mass, it's like, yeah. it just is a little confusing almost. I could see that. You know, there is the, there is the principle of progressive solemnity. So like not every mass should be like gangbusters, every chant, every mount of incense, every, like there is a sense in which there are some masses which are meant to be a little scaled back so you can appreciate the beauty of other masses. You know? mm -hmm. Yeah. That is a real phenomenon. That's and the one Lauren's talking about was Pentecost. So it was yeah, so like, a special. It makes sense to put all the stops on a feast like Pentecost. Mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. Which people don't realize it's actually the third largest feast in our church year Yeah, after Easter and Christmas. Yeah. But there's a reason for everything they do. And I mean, one of the, one of the things that I've heard from people, um, close to me is that, you know, these priests are just playing dress up. Like, it's ridiculous that they have these, you know, all of these vestments, uh, very ornate and everything. But, I mean, honestly, doing Bible in a year now and, and reading through the Old Testament, I mean, everything, there's there's a basis for, for everything that they do, and especially the fact that they're in Persona Christi. Um, but if you go back into the Old Testament, sort of in, in terms of the vestments for those priests, I mean, just as ornate, you know? So well, I think one element of worship is for us is wonder and awe. Mm -hmm. You know, that fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, it says in scripture. And, and so we should go to mass and feel a sense of like, this is so different. Yeah. And it shouldn't be ordinary. Like that's the whole point. It shouldn't be ordinary. This right. is extraordinary. I mean, yeah. heaven, heaven on earth. It's, right. it's, it should conjure up sort of that majesty that it merits. Yeah. I, I've gone through a revolution, revolution in my thinking, um, kind of watching the Queen of mm -hmm. England, because I, I've, I guess, you know, growing up in America, I was very egalitarian. Like, why do we have a Queen? You know, why does the Queen need to be around, have all this pomp and circumstance, and like all this fancy clothes and living Buckingham Palace? And and why, you know, why did the popes used to have such grandeur and the the three tiered uh, crown, okay. the tiara that they used to wear? But I realized that that part of the reason why is because. In order to have a hierarchy, in order to have order, you need to recognize that there are some that are higher. And because we're such visual people, there needs to be a visual difference between the queen and the ordinary person. Mm -hmm. And, you know, as much as we as Americans are like, no, everyone's equal. Well, in the church, it's not the way that God set it up. You know, he set up certain days to be holier. He set up certain times, certain places to be holier, certain people to be holier. Not, not in the sense of like, 
their own personal holiness, because there's some really wicked, awful priests out there, but in the sense that he has the task of doing something extraordinarily holy, yeah. and so therefore he should be covered in gold. Not when he goes back to the rectory. He should live like St. John Vianney and have, you know, torn patches in his cassock and eat one potato a week. But <laughs> I've tried that. It doesn't work. No. But there should be there should be that. And, and John Vianney was very clear about that. He's like, I'll be poor in my personal life, but when I come to the church, I'll spare no expense. Mm-hmm. Make, can I want to make a point that, about what you just said before, too, about like symbolism? Because that's something else that I think maybe, I mean, maybe it's not even well understood in the, in the traditional Latin Mass, but to actually understand why things are the way they are in the Novus Ordo, like um, really quick example, maybe two really quick examples, in case I'm again, Fluji Guys podcast, they're talking about the um, the, the Triduum Masses, and there's actually part of the um, ritual that says that before the priest references the crucifix, he's meant to take off his shoes. Mm-hmm. And you can think, oh, that's that's a stomach creation. We don't need that. Okay, it's evocative of when God commands Moses to move his sandals before approaching mm-hmm. the burning bush. Well, that's awesome. Oh, that's just so cool. I've never actually thought of that. That's just that so cool. Connection. And, and it reminds you, again, that you're on holy ground. Or or another example, I heard them say that when the priest incenses the gifts on the altar, some priests just kind of throw the thurible near, vaguely near the gifts, but some will actually make a, cr- a cross over it and then do two circles and a third. And that's meant to symbolize God in time as Christ and like throughout time and outside of time as God the Father. Huh. That's awesome. That's just so cool. Like And learning that kind of thing, you see and you're like, oh, wow, right. God is both in time for me, but also outside of time for everybody. And like, right, I'm on holy ground. The priest is moving his shoes. Like that kind of thing increases the devotion of the laity, I think. I mean, I'm a lady and it increases my devotion. So, you know. <laughs> yeah. Not laity, not lady. We need to. I'm not, yeah, right, <laughs> I'm a lady. Not I'm not a lady. I'm a non-lady laity. <laughs> but I think that's a great point. And there's, um, there's a great book by Dr. Edward Shree. I've only read snippets of it and watched a video uh, sort of on, on one section of it. But the biblical walk through the mass, mm. you know, to understand sort of what's going on is super helpful. You know, whether you're attending a TLM or a Novus Ordo. Um, but yeah, I mean, there's a lot of things like even the priest, right? Your hands are consecrated. So to me, I mean, I'm not a fan of Eucharistic ministers. Um, mm. you know, I, I, I think I, I always receive kneeling and the priest's hands are consecrated for a reason, you know? So yeah, that's why they're called extraordinary ministers of Holy Communion and not every Sunday ministers of Holy Communion. <laughs> right. For special occasions. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. That's the thing, and 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 I think that you know everything that happened after Vatican II was kind of a reaction to to a genuine problem of clericalism, where the priest was so elevated that he was seen as untouchable. I remember hearing a story about someone someone was telling me that when they were like a little kid and had like you know the full veiled nuns and everything in uh, in Catholic school, there's like second or third grade, and they asked the nun, "Do priests go to the bathroom?" Mm-hmm. And the nun responded, "Not as much as the rest of us." <laughs> as, awesome. As a priest, I can tell you, I go to the bathroom equally as much as everyone else. But <laughs> that clericalism was a problem. But you know what another example of clericalism is to get, to get controversial again? Please. An ordinary saying his priest can't celebrate mass at Orientum, even if his parishioners want him to. I'm sorry, that's clericalism. That's the bishop saying, "I have my preferences, and yours aren't good enough for me." Mm. That's clericalism too. And we like to we we always think it just goes one way, but it doesn't just go one way. It just doesn't. Or it's a pastor saying, "My parishioners shouldn't be receiving on the tongue." Not yeah. because of COVID, but even before COVID, because I don't like it. Well, it's tough. Tough. It's too bad for you. Yeah. Law, it's the law. The church has laws. I have a right to if I want to. Right? Like, I don't want to sound like, you know. But, but well, you are a paralegal, so. I, I am a paralegal. But but that's a real thing, though. You, the, the, the lady has a right to to do that. And they it's do. And it's a valid thing. Mm-hmm. And to look down your nose at somebody who wants to do that is absurd. Yeah. No, that's very true. Clericalism does go both ways. And, and that's why we need to understand. That, you know, we're very blessed in the church to have 
a certain leeway in terms of spirituality. So yeah, if someone wants to receive on the tongue, they should be able to receive on the tongue. If someone doesn't, that's also their, their prerogative. And no priest should be able to make that declaration for the whole church in that way. Right. So let's look at this objectively. Is there, any, is there an objective, better, or worse way to worship? You know, is the traditional Latin Mass more powerful? Is it more, um, more pleasing to God? Is it more sanctifying to the people that are there? What do you think? Stirring a pot with a controversial question. I'm going to say no. Ooh. Because, you know, heaven is opened up at every Mass. And the Mass is of but, infinite value, so how mm-hmm. do you have it's not like more, more infinity? Heaven, right? <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> less heaven, right? It's not like, yeah. <laughs> True, but as human beings, our dispositions matter. Yeah, I, I, think, okay. I think that a... The Tila Mass as such, and Novus Ordo, Novus Ordo as such, there's not one that's more or less worthwhile to God or anything like that. But I think that God does love beauty, and he gave us beauty. And so like a more beautiful Mass, there is, I mean, I want to be careful here. You know, a more beautiful Mass is not worth more than a less beautiful Mass, I suppose, but there, is, there are objectively better things about a more beautiful Mass. And so to the extent that, a, that the average Tila Mass is celebrated more beautifully than the average Novus Ordo Mass, which I think is something that we could say with some degree of certainty, yeah. then in that case, I think we can say objectively it's more, you know, at least it's more beautiful. But that doesn't need to be the case. That's that's the tragedy of it. It doesn't need to be that way. Sure, sure. Yeah, people took their, their, their roles in the Novus Ordo seriously. So that's certainly true. And and I don't know if you've ever um, kind of seen the translated prayers sometimes from the Old Mass are just a lot more elevating. Hmm. You know, they speak of the majesty of God. And, and Give an example off the top of your head. Off the top of my head. Um, for example, there's a, there's a blue book of blessings that priests often use to bless things. And I'm trying to use it less and less because it's, it's banal and mundane. It's like, you know, when I'm blessing holy water, it's like, God, please bless this water and make it good. The end, you know, and <laughs> you know, I mean, that's an exaggeration, but it's, it's really like, it doesn't, it doesn't have the same oomph because in like the Latin prayers, which thankfully they've translated into English. So you can use the Latin, the English translation of the Latin prayers. It's like, you know, may this cast away the evil spirits, may yeah. it, May it bring health and goodwill to all. May it remind us of our baptism and all kinds of things. And you're really putting a real blessing into it. It's not just some, um, you know, just kind of warm, fuzzy feeling. Mm-hmm. So there is that element too. Now, what do you think we were, we were talking uh, over our, our before we started recording this about? Does the devil hate Latin? Because some priests, like Father Chad Ripperger, will often say the devil hates Latin, as if Latin is a holier language. Is Latin a holier language? I don't want to say, I don't know. It's a more beautiful language in some ways. And I think maybe the devil hates reverence more than he hates a language specifically. Mm. I don't know. I'm not the devil. <laughs> Contrary to some, some opinions, perhaps. <laughs> I bet your little sister would disagree, but... <laughs> on her day. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not going to pretend to be an expert in this at all. I've never thought of that. I don't know that anyone actually knows. Maybe exorcists. Where does that ask, come ask from? Them. Wait, you did an exorcism. Should we ask you? I, I helped with one. Okay. Yeah. That didn't come up? But you weren't in the actual... I was actually never in with any of the sessions uh, oh. when they did it. So I don't know if they did Latin or English. Um, all, all my praying was in English and well, was, wasn't all that effective. He's, is he, he's an exorcist, right? He is. Okay. Yeah, he is. Well, you know, I don't know. I'm not. So so. He's, he's, yeah, he's but got It might just be that he's more comfortable praying in Latin. I mean, it could be his own experience that for him Latin is more effective. And so that doesn't mean that that is objectively the case. I would say. And that's the tricky part about being Catholic is that we talk about objective and subjective, right? So objectively, yes. I mean, if you're talking to a demon, perhaps 
using Latin is more powerful. But when you're celebrating a mass where people have to subjectively participate, yeah. is Latin the most effective way of helping them participate? You know, I'm not, I'm not talking about like just being able to sing the songs. I mean, like actually enter into the mystery of what's right. going on. I mean, there's something to be said about the living word of God, right? So, I mean, I suppose that if you went to a traditional Latin mass, you'd read the readings ahead of time and you have, you know, your English translation. But I think it goes back to your point before about like the disposition of the per- the person going, right? So like how much do we, this is another thing too. People just like rush in or are late. Uh, there's no sort of preparation for a lot of people before mass. Um, and, and that's a problem with, with the Novus Ordo. Um, I suppose with the traditional Latin mass, you know, they're pretty long, so you can't, <laughs> whether or not, yeah, I mean, I suppose You're rushing you right into the gospel. And yeah, yeah. <laughs> but also the problem of praying the rosary. Right, right, exactly. Instead the mass. Yeah, so there is something to be said about the vernacular, you know, of, of to your point of the translation now with, with the readings, to be able to, you know, yeah. to, to know what's going on and to I, hear that. I think one draw is that when people go to a traditional Latin mass, they know what they're getting. Mm-hmm. They know they're getting solid Catholic theology. They know they're not getting fluff and weirdness, right? Mm-hmm. And which you can find at Norvis Ordo, but it's it's a, it's kind of a crapshoot sometimes in some yeah. parishes. And yeah, I think I mean in this region where we are in in Stanford, Connecticut, I think we're very blessed uh, just because there are a a ton of churches. There's a lot of masses, and so you do have the ability. We're close to New York as well. Um, you you can really choose, and there are, there's a spectrum of of you know, whatever you want is, is pretty much there. Yeah. Uh, I'd say the majority in this area are really solid though. Yes. Yes, exactly. But I, you know, I I do feel for people who are, you know, maybe living in more remote areas, um, that don't really have a, a a worship choice. Or down where I grew up. (laughs) Or where Father Joseph grew up. Yeah. Yeah, The seat of American Catholicism for like 150 years. I mean, it's not talking about some backwater. We're talking about the Archdiocese of Baltimore. Yeah. (laughs) It's just sort of astonishing to even think about. (laughs) I mean, yeah, but you know, if you go back historically, that was that was one of the main things, main places where uh, the rebellion started in 1968. A bunch of priests got together in the basement of a church and signed a document even before the encyclical of Humanae Vitae came out and said, "We will not agree with this." Yeah, that's obedient. And you're like, yeah, and you're like, wow, okay, and and that that it's whole wrapped up. If you're not going to obey that, why would you obey the liturgical norms? You know, you just kind of do your own thing. And yeah. It's been my subjective experience and anecdotal experience that younger younger priests and seminarians are like very well formed on these questions. Like I, I don't know them all, but I know a couple of the seminarians that are at ICs and I'm from friendly with a couple of the people who've just been ordained transitional deacons and whatnot. And like I can't imagine any of this happening among them. Like no. it's, it's some in some ways almost maybe too much the other direction. One could argue though I don't think so. But like I hard I think this is a problem that's being improved. But there are still those priests running around who think this, you know. They got heartburn around the Second Vatican Council and think the Holy Spirit spoke to them about, you know, <laughs> about no more Latin and Mass or something like that. Yeah. You know? So, okay, so here's a question then. What do you think the future is for the traditional Latin Mass, especially with Traditionis Custodians? Custodium? Custodia? Traditionis Custodes, I think. I don't speak Latin. I'm sorry. Yeah. Nor do I. That was the, actually the only class in high school I ever failed. <laughs> Latin. Wow. Yeah. Look at you now. Look at me. <laughs> Still not celebrating Latin <laughs> Mass. Right. Look at me now, yeah. Uh, what do you think the future is? Do you think it's going to continue to grow? Do you think it's going to start being curtailed more and more? Or are people going to lose interest in it? Or? I mean, it's it's hard to say, but I think right now, you know, like there is a push for increased reverence. So I don't I don't see it going away. I mean, I there's not I, 
unless there are more sort of solemn, you know, Novus Ordo, reverent Novus Ordo masses that are um, celebrated, I, I mean, this is, I think, to Joe's point earlier, sort of a refuge of, of where else, where else am I going to go to to find what I want? Because I can tell you, it's repugnant to sit in the pew at a liberal parish. I mean, for me, I just like when the priest is asking questions to to us during his homily. What do you think? It's like, oh, really? Yeah, <laughs> that's not. But that's actually not. I mean, to me, of all the of all the abuses, that's probably not the worst one. Okay, but totally just it's just an worst, example. But, but yeah. it's it's not the worst. But <laughs> just the lack of reverence, you know. I mean, I think that's. I'll never forget a priest uh, who was a hospital chaplain, so maybe he had a very depressing job. I don't know. But he was, you know, always kind of hamming it up on Sundays, and growing up, he would he would always say in his homily, say, "When you die, the first question God's going to ask you is, did you have a good time?" Oh, and I'll never forget one day my dad in translation that that part of one of the epistles. Yeah, I thought it was take up your cross and follow me, but no, right. did you have a good time? But I'll never forget my dad and I were walking out of mass one Sunday after he'd said this, and my dad came up to him and said, "You know, I don't think the first question is did you have a good time. The first question is going to be how much good did you do in your time on earth." Now, I never forgot good that. Line. I thought that was that was a great line from my dad. Mm-hmm. And the priest was just like, "Yeah, have a nice morning." <laughs> I think in answer to your question, though, I think the f- I actually am, I'm unusually optimistic about this. Wow, you are not usually optimistic. Um, I think think that the future is young priests who love the Eucharist and love the liturgy and want to celebrate reverently. And I think that what's going to end up happening, I'm talking long term, is that more and more priests will celebrate the the Novus Ordo more and more reverently with more and more, you know, Latin and some of the trappings and stuff. And I think that the the TLM may actually fade in importance in some people's lives only because it'll actually be fed by the Novus Ordo parishes. and that would be the the right thing, the beautiful thing. And that, to the extent that there are hierarchs in the church who are mil- who are trying to, to stop that from happening, they're not on the right side of history. I just hate to say it. They're, 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 they're just not because the, the mass isn't meant to be celebrated reverently. And it's not. It's there are. There's a whole, I mean, I I don't lose sleep knowing that there are guitars in mass somewhere in the country. Like that's fine. I wouldn't go to them, but that's fine. So you shouldn't lose sleep over knowing that there's Latin being spoken in a church in America. And if you do, like. <laughs> That's not being open-minded. You're not. You're not being the tolerant liberal you think you are. Like you're not. You're, you're being <laughs> op- oppressive, right? Like don't lose sleep over other people's preferences as long as they're valid. Yeah. 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 I mean, to be honest, like I think in terms of just this is just a subjective experience that I've had is that the older priests are the ones who I've experienced more of the liberal, you know, sort of uh, irreverence. Absolutely. It hasn't come from younger priests at all in my experience. Well, because why would you want to become a priest to give your life up for nothing? Mm-hmm if it doesn't mean anything. And I think there was a revolutionary spirit in the 60s of like, we're going to change the church. And that, that was the big draws. We're, we're changing everything. But then yeah. we kind of, you know, with 70 years of looking back, we're kind of like, mm, how'd that go? Can I tell a really quick story about that? This yeah. is the worst abuse I ever saw. A chaplain, case I went to Marist College, and there was a, there was a um, we didn't have a chaplain for a year, so it's, they were pulling whatever priest they could find at Silver Mass for us on Sundays. And there was one priest who would come in. He was a nice guy. He was a great homeless, but... Uh, he would he would walk around with the book of the gospels during while reading the gospel so he'd pace the church while reading the gospels and he would pause to explain the gospel to us while reading it so you know jesus came to blah blah blah, blah. and that's around this area blah, blah, blah. and jesus he says that he and i was i was like white knuckling the pew like please father just get like just stop like i can't do it anymore and he would like he would begin math by saying let's just take a moment to think of those things which you know those ways we've those bad things we've done like that's not that's not in the like what are you talking about like this is so irreverent so he, he there are some very and this is an altar priest and there's some and not to say he was a bad guy i'm sure he was a good priest he's not like satanic or anything like that but you know he's it was not being it was not reverent and it was not feeding yeah people. And I think there, you know, the seminary formation in the '70s may have contributed to that. Some of them were being form, formed 
for mass, the books for which didn't exist yet. That's the other thing. People yeah. were in seminary when this was changed. They didn't have a missile the next day. Like, so the, to some extent, it's not entirely their fault. You know? yeah. It was just a weird time in the church. I remember a, a certain priest of our diocese who was a very solidly orthodox man. He was telling me this, this story about one time he was at this retreat. And part of the retreat, I guess, was to bake your own Eucharistic bread. Okay, you know, that's can be done well, can be done poorly. So uh, he gets to the consecration and he consecrates the, the Eucharist. And then he gets to the, the fractioning rite where they break the Eucharist. And he broke the bread and found that it was uncooked in the middle and started flowing out. Mm. So he had to put Jesus back in the oven to finish cooking him. I'm like, <laughs> how do you do that? Yeah, I don't know. So it was, it was a strange time. It was a strange time for, for everyone. And people, I think, that were formed in that time um, definitely did not get the solid formation that, that's happening now. Where so, are um, places that people can go to the traditional Latin Mass around where we live? Around where we live? Mm-hmm. Um, there's a couple of parishes. The one in Bridgeport, St. Cyril and Methodius. There's one in Norwalk, um, St. Mary's in Norwalk. Um, Georgetown, Sacred Heart in Georgetown, every Sunday. I don't even and know where Georgetown is. Nobody does. <laughs> I think it's on the way to Wilton. Yeah, right. You probably that. Somewhere between no. here and Danbury. Where Wilton, where Wilton, like Reading, and Ridgefield kind of like crash right there okay. on that little. Like, is Georgetown a town or is it like a hamlet? It's a hamlet. Yeah, but it's the coolest little hamlet yeah. in Connecticut. If you've if you've never been to Georgetown, listeners, go to Georgetown, Connecticut. I think it is a pretty area. It's a gorgeous, really gorgeous area. Like all the houses are from like early 1800s. It's really cool. There's another one is uh, in Terrytown, New York, Immaculate Conception. It's a solid Catholic community there. So yeah, you can you can definitely find it. It's not it's not necessarily far. So what would it take, or what would you have to do to be able to celebrate a, a traditional Latin Mass? You yourself learn Latin, and that's all. No, <laughs> <laughs> that's step one. <laughs> and and over the do you pandem- have to learn it, or would you just have to read it? Well, that was the thing. Over the pandemic, I felt perhaps God put on my heart to learn the traditional Latin Mass. and mm-hmm. But then I realized I did want to pray it. I didn't want to just recite the words as if it was some magical incantation. So I was like, hmm, that's a lot of work. I don't have talent and time for learning Latin. You speak Italian, don't you? Oh, like not bit. well. Uh, no. Right? He left, he left Italy. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think that's why. But it, I think it takes a, a lot of work to train yourself in it, right? Because I remember talking to a priest who was learning it. I think he says a lot of the masses now, but he was like, oh, I, t- I messed this up. I, like, we, I would have no idea sitting there. You know, I was like, you messed up? I had no idea, you know? like. <laughs> um, but I've, I've heard that a lot. Yeah. There's a priest who are talking about the Latin mass. It's complicated. Yeah. yeah. But it's better for yourself, as long as you got the word of institution, right? I mean, like when I pray sometimes in Latin by myself, I, my, I know my pronunciation is terrible. But like it doesn't really matter because like God gets the idea. Like it's not for public consumption. But if you were celebrating publicly, it would have to be a little bit better, right? I would think so. Yeah. I mean, uh, it would just take me so long to pronounce every word properly. Yeah. Maybe someday in the future. So is know. it just up to priests to decide for themselves that they want to learn this? Well, now with Tradicione Custodium. Custodius. Custodius. Custodium. <laughs> I see. I get my Latin. It's, it's horrendous. <laughs> it's what is it? Traditionis custodis. So you need the permission from your from your, your ordinary from your diocesan bishop. And if you were ordained after it was promulgated, he needs to tell Rome. A little ambiguous as to whether he needs Rome's permission or not, but he needs to tell Rome that you're doing it. Like okay. you, not like a priest, like you specifically. So does this mean it is going to die? It's being choked in some dioceses. Well, and it's and it's limited to where you can celebrate, right? Like it can't be a parish church or yeah, it's uh, a little confusing. Which is also vague because 
Yeah. What are, what else is out there? Well, like in oratory. Well, in Europe, there's all kinds of extra little buildings, but not in rural Connecticut. You know? No, not so much. Yeah, and there's also weird things like it abrogated the confirmation right and the ordination right. I think at least the, I think the confirmation right, and baptism right, are in the old form are completely yeah. abrogated at this point. But you know, in our diocese, there's the Institute of Christ the King, mm-hmm. which is an institute of priests whose sole mission is to provide the traditional Latin Mass. There's also the Fraternity of Saint Peter, yeah, which is another organization, uh, another. Not charismatic, fully in union with Rome. Fully in union with Rome, and, and those are really great, and, and they're getting great vocations, young vocations. And there's like the, I, uh, something I've recently wanted to check. I decided I want to check out is the Anglican Ordinariate. I mean, it's not in Latin, but at Orientum, very traditional, very like old language and stuff. Like you know, you have to speak in a British accent though. <laughs> Maybe I don't know. If I could do that. <laughs> and I think you have to. Don't you have to be born Anglican? You can't just like transfer but, but into we that. Go one. to it. Like I could go to it. You can go to it. Yeah, you, can cel- you can celebrate it. No, you wouldn't be. Able, I wouldn't be. I don't think you get faculties for it. No, I don't think so. I don't think so. But it would be cool someday. We are very blessed. Actually, I mean, people forget that we think of you know. Okay, there's one mass. Well, actually, have you ever been to any like Eastern Rite liturgies? I want to hit them all. That's not on my bucket list. <laughs> I want to hit them all. Like Byzantine Rite or. I think I went to one Byzantine right. Did you? Yeah. Because right here in Stanford, there's a seminary in the yeah. cathedral, mm-hmm. St. Basil's. That's really cool. Armenian mass. That could be one. Have okay. you been? Yeah, I have. That's awesome. Yeah. Did you have a friend that's Armenian? or? Um, my mom's first cousin married an Armenian woman. Okay. And so they go to the Armenian church Nice. in New York. It's not that far. Is that its own right? Would that be Melkite? What would that be? Uh, I don't know. I have no idea. I don't know the rights. I'm wrong about the rights. <laughs> but that's really cool. I mean, I think that's, they've got the reverence right. You know, I know it's a lot longer than yes, our mass. Yes, and the churches are very beautiful. Tend to be ornate, and that's such a great blessing being Catholic. Is that Catholic means universal? There are these different rights that are all in union with Rome, all approved and all beautiful. So thank you so much for joining us on this episode of Restless. You can find us on Veritas Catholic Network, 1350 AM, and also wherever you get your podcasts. Tune in next time 